Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. The conversation here is about the uh, art market. We have live art sales team with uh, Sophie Coco, George O'Dell, and Arena Novak with us. We're going to discuss uh, a lot of the events that are taking place, but also the undercurrent and interest that that uh, uh, drives. And I thought as we let people gather in, we'd uh, take a minute to share our impressions of some of the major art events that took place over the weekend. I know people don't think of this as an art event, but it is um, in the definition of Burning Man is that it is an art event and it is one of the most prominent uh, cultural events in the world these days after a couple of years of um, being closed due to the pandemic. They had uh, their first uh, burn uh, this weekend. And uh, if you follow what happens either on Instagram or through the reporting, you can see that there are a fair number of large art projects that take place. Uh, uh, I wasn't sure, George, Sophie, if uh, uh, Arena, if any of you had um, one, have any of you ever been? Are you burner? I've I've never been. I have lots of friends who have been college friends from another lifetime ago. You know, I think it's quite interesting the way that Burning Man has come into the fold of more popular culture. You know, last year we saw the first ever Burning Man auction at Sotheby's, which I think was complete with a DJ throughout the preview playing Burning Man-esque music. Sort of the concept of this temporary space and these objects that ultimately get burned, you know, there's a purity in that. And I wonder, I just wonder how much of it like merges into not just the event cycle and experiential side of things in a more, in a more, to the greater populace, but also like where it coincides with the art world? Is it just a place of escapism for collectors and people in the art world? Uh, it's another place to gather if you didn't go to Seoul last week um, or or if there's a greater confluence there. Sophie, you have, have you been keeping up? I have been keeping up and I've never been, but I think it was interesting to see the works this year, especially, you know, to George's point in the context of the larger like experiential art realm becoming more mainstream the artworks felt like something i had seen in other places outside of just burning man and you know it kind of felt like the two worlds were colliding in a greater sense um you know obviously the the light installations and those types of artworks are such a big draw of burning man but um yeah i mean you always get a subset of the art world population there and It'll be interesting to see if it grows or or kind of continues at the same clip, but it was nice to see the event back up and running this year. From what I've seen, there's the usual mix of stuff that just looks like public art or things that are almost sort of uh, created as uh, found sculptures, and then some fairly sophisticated uh, works of art, uh, some by established artists and so, some not. And, and it feels like there was a kind of building momentum going into the pandemic that has somewhat gotten interrupted, but obviously not so interrupted that there there weren't strong pieces this year. And I suspect uh, given the attendance uh, and the opening uh, of the world after the pandemic to the, you know, as you said, the combination of experiential art and this great, you know, uh, uh, sort of 
bucket list experience coming together and there being more and more established art uh, seen there. Or, those of us who were not at Burning Man were also probably not at um, Freeze in Seoul, but that was also a major event in the art calendar. And I'd love to hear uh, uh, all of your impressions. Arena, why don't you start us off? Have you been talking to people who were at the fair? Yes, absolutely. And there's certainly a lot to uncover as this is the newest edition of First Seoul. Sadly, I haven't had a chance to travel there this year, but from what I hear, the level of hospitality in Korea is unparalleled. Generally, everyone is saying that the food was amazing. I saw a lot of kimchi and bulgogi posted on Instagram. However, the taxis were impossible to get. The city-wise, I guess every city has its negatives. But from the art standpoint, Seoul Art Week totally makes sense because the art market is rapidly growing. Uh, flourishing economy was certainly backed by what galleries brought to the fair from ultra-contemporary to masters. Um, I think that all eyes of the, of the younger generation of Korean collectors um, are currently directed towards you know, ultra-contemporary art, which again, it all makes sense. Um, I recently read an article that the total sales value of ultra-contemporary artists um, at the Korean auctions were under just 73,000 in 2017 and went up to 18.7 million by 2022. Overall, it's a drastic jump. Um, and some say, um, just according to that, that Seoul is the new Hong Kong. And I think I think that's right, Arena. And, you know, I think the growth of Seoul as an art hub within the greater world and Pan-Asia has been a long time coming. I remember I was there back in 2017 and you could the the change on the ground was already palpable. And at that point, you didn't have international galleries like today it's Ropac or Koenig there on the ground or Gladstone. You know all these galleries that have moved Western galleries that have moved into this space. You know akin to what we saw in Hong Kong over a decade ago when you had a lot of the Gagosians, White Cube, Simon Lees, etc. moving into moving into Hong Kong. Seoul, from what I could feel on the ground, is a very Western facing city as well. It's open. There's free speech. Um, it's a commercial city. And the collecting enthusiasm on the ground, both for traditional Korean artists to Western contemporary to Asian and Asian contemporary, um, is very, very palpable and seems to be very much a part of the culture. Um, and I think you can see that when you see the biggest names in pop music also becoming um, art collectors. And, you know, it's not just BTS before it was Big Bang. Um, so there's there's a tradition and a want of collecting, I think, across the spectrum. And Marion, you and I have talked a bit about that with some certain artists that sell well in Asia, from small objects and prints and editions that have their own markets to unique paintings um, and works on paper. Well, it's clear that the fair was strongly supported by the uh, government, and they made a huge effort to both coincide freeze with the Korean art fair itself uh, and sort of show the kind of critical mass that they have. Just going through the sales reports, it does feel like this was sort of bringing the art world to uh, Seoul more than it was, the, uh, you know, uh, Asia uh, in the broadest sense. I mean, it, you did get a lot of sense that there were people from all over Asia who'd come to uh, the fair, which is to be expected. But a lot of the emphasis was on sales to uh, Korean uh, collectors and, you know, uh, global galleries sort of, uh, that didn't have locations in Seoul, you know, making sales uh, to uh, uh, local institutions and, and collectors. Um 
To totally. I, I tried to inquire on a few works and I told I was told that they were exclusively being reserved for either local or at least Asian collectors, you know, stuff that, you know, willing to willing to, you know, go strong and be very confident in trying to acquire for clients. And, you know, it was basically politely told that next next round when we're back in the West. And I think you saw not just galleries going over, but a lot of independent advisors and dealers, you know, who through the pandemic probably opened up some Korean trade lines and also wanted to get on the ground and see what it's really like now that travel is open again. And is there a, a you know, a, a difference between selling to the Korean versus selling to broader uh, Asian market? I mean, was this a, a, the, the local Korean contemporary art market is highly developed. That that was sort of the publicity factor here of just recognizing that mm -hmm. was one of the great um, achievements uh, of it. But that that had already happened. Uh, what What's the next step after this? What, what, what do you build on this? More Do more galleries open or do they just have more or bigger fairs? I think it's hard to say. I mean, I was thinking too that the, the fair was well-timed with the Korean Thanksgiving coming up in the middle of the month. It's kind of just before everyone disappears on their holiday season. Um, the, the report said that it brought in a lot of collectors from China and Japan and, and South Asia. You know, I think what we're seeing is a stratification of the Asian art market, which can clearly support it. Um, and people are looking, you know, as, as Hong Kong has its issues, people are looking at other cities where they might be able to open a robust local trade, but also suit the wants and needs of a larger Asian market. So, you know, whoever, whichever city can provide the best logistics, you know, the best experience on the ground, not just in a fair or gallery setting, but as to Arena's point, food and hospitality, you know, to the victor goes the spoils. You know, we, we see the same with the emergence in America of the LA market, right? And, you know, will Chicago or Dallas ever make that jump? Will Miami ever become more than just a fair hub center in December? You know, it's, it's the same kind of thing. And I think there's more buying power on the ground potentially in Asia um, on a regular basis. Yeah. And I also, to George's point, I thought it was interesting that there were 10 Japanese galleries in attendance at Free Soul. So it was really, you know, kind of the whole area came together for this opportunity. And it wasn't just Korean galleries, um, you know, taking, taking on this opportunity, but, you know, thinking outside of just Korea and to Japan and, um, Taiwan and other areas. So I thought it was a really nice kind of showing of the region. Um, and also just having the other art fair at the same time, the traditional Korean fair, um, a lot of Korean galleries obviously opted for that, but it was a great showing of, of this, the regional support for the fair. And have you had any interest from clients on either works or artists driven by the fair itself? I mean, a note we don't we don't we have clients in uh, Asia, uh, but that's not a, a huge portion of your client base. I'm just curious if there's anything that came out of the fair uh, that you're hearing. I mean, definitely people were uh, reaching out to us a lot, uh, especially I do work with a lot of clients um, based in Korea and Japan. And I saw a lot of movement um, just in that part of the client base on my end. But again, all of the requests were, you know, for ultra contemporary, um, which, again, I find very interesting. Well, and the beauty is you can only sell one pa a painting to one person at a time, you know, legally speaking. So, um, <laughs> you know, if you don't get something at the fair, you get any you, you know, sort of dead set on it you got to start asking through the channel so we we definitely saw an uptick in that um and as mentioned earlier in this in this chat right you know it's reserved for the west and you've got a are reserved for asia and you've got a western client who wants it well 
you're going to have to look elsewhere. So, you know, I think like any fair cycle, there's there was wants and needs that were unfulfilled. And, um, you know, we got we got those calls. And any names we want to uh, broadcast or are you keeping that to yourself? No, well, we'll keep that to ourselves for right now. Um, but, we'll you know, look out for the hot list. And I'm sure some of those names will be on it. Well, let's move on to the hot list. We uh, saw a big sale for Michael Garris. Uh, recently, and I know uh, he's an artist that you, George, should pay a lot of attention to, and there's been a number of uh, auction attempts to sort of move his prices up. So I thought it would be a good time for us to talk a little bit about what's going on in his market and what's driving it. Well, that, that, that was a really curious one. You know, the Majerus market's been on the march. In London, specifically, um, we've seen a number of record-breaking sales sort of cycle after cycle for the last year and a half. Um, I believe it was kicked off with a day sale sale in London. Um, and then a few nice examples came out in the New York sales, um, again, mostly with Sotheby's. And curiously, there's a series um, that Majerus did of Basquiat Warhol collaborations that he appropriated and then painted across. Um, and these are typically felt to be one of, the, one of if not the most sought-after series by the artist. Um, and I had always pegged that one of these would turn up at auction in the next six to 12 months and make over a million dollars. I kind of still believe that. Um, and one turned up sort of on the eve of the of free soul in a Sotheby's Singapore sale. Um, and it made 680 hammer or which I think like 700 all in. Um, so we'll have to double check the numbers there. Um, but that was a really curious sort of outlier. And I think it turned up in that sale because when it was sold the last time in 2014 or 2015, it had sold to an Asian collector. So it was sold locally, um, kind of off-cycle sale, but it still shows you the kind of growing momentum and the way that collectors, both in the West and in the East, are, are looking at Majerus again through fresh eyes. You know, his, his work is certainly prophetic in how it thinks about how and when it was made in the 90s and early 2000s before his death, how it looks at how we consume images today. So it feels very relevant in a lot of ways. Um, and I think I think we'll see that market trend continue um, so, as long as good examples come out. So that all-in price was $784,339 converted from Singapore to dollars. But what's interesting is that the, the previous high price of 600000 was set in a mid-season sale uh, at Sotheby's in New York. Yep. So it, I'm assuming we're going to see another run at kind of establishing a market for him in New York, maybe in these late September sales coming up. I think so. I think if you get another one of these mom block collaborations, you'll you'll hit the million dollar plus mark. Um, another large, you know, 90 inch plus picture like the one that you referenced, Marianne. You know, I, again, I think you'll see another strong result. Historically, it's been a small market with a few major players in it, um, but I think we're starting to see a broadening cast of characters jump into this. You know, just yesterday I was asked if I could source something, you know, it's like, find me anything that's a good deal. And then the more we talked, the more it became very, very condensed as to what they were actually looking for. So I think people are getting educated here very quickly. So uh, let's move on to another artist who's had a lot of action this summer. That's Lynn Drexler, who has another work coming up at, um, at Bonham's in Los Angeles in a couple of days, uh, uh, which I think, you know, is a work that people will be interested in. I'm not sure it's going to set a, a, a new record, but it does sort of mark the the sort of expansion of uh, her audience. Do do any of you have sort of comments about what's going on? And is it, I guess one of the real questions, given how quickly everything's become so expensive among these Drexlers, 
is there enough work uh, really to you know sort of feed this market? I mean, the last six months we've seen um, a steady rise in her prices. Like literally every result since March of 2022 um, is showing gradual increase, with the highest result currently at 693,000. Um, but I think there is definitely a market trend favoring female artists, whether, you know, ultra contemporary or historic. From what I hear in conversations with collectors, everyone is searching for like the next rediscovery uh, or the next high demand female abstract artist. And this certainly explains the rise of Drexler, supported by the recent auction performance of her female contemporaries. But I think so far there is enough to satisfy the demand for her work as maybe more and more uh, works will be popping up at the auction, at the auctions, but we'll see, you know, but we'll see the volume growing. We're also starting to see Drexler in context, right? There's There was just an announcement of a show um, that Art Intelligence Group is putting on in Hong Kong, which is going to put Drexler in context with Mitchell and Frankenthaler um, and Krasner. So, you know, you're starting to see the story being built um, in a more, not aggressive, but more focused kind of way rather than just kind of a sleepy offshoot of the ABEX movement. Um, as to Arena's point, you know, the art world loves a rediscovery. You know, I you know, say that Majerus in the last conversation is also kind of a rediscovery. Um, and we're also, you know, we've been talking a lot about a shift towards abstraction. And I think with a shift into abstraction and looking for something that feels undervalued versus contemporaries, you know, if Mitchell's easily push seven figures for small, small paintings, you know, why should a Drexler not be, you know, half a million plus for a 40 by 30 picture. So, you know, we're, we're kind of just moving the market to where it logically should be. And I, you know, I think there's plenty of room to run. Um, we've certainly seen it in, with other American artists and we've seen it with Italian artists and all all over these kind of rediscoveries, um, you know, how long it will run, you know, that's, that's for anybody to say, but it seems like there's definitely enough material out there. So, Sophie, you've been following uh, another, uh, you know, underappreciated abstract uh, artist who happens to uh, be a woman uh, and, and noticed a pop in uh, Alice Baber's uh, market. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So Alice Baber had a nice sale, um, I guess, a little over a week ago at this point. Um, at auction where she 19X'd her previous auction record of $10,000 to make um, a $190,000 auction record. But I think the interesting thing about Baber is that she, you could almost contextualize her, and not almost, you can contextualize her more within the abstract expressionist movement. She was, you know, far more involved in the circles that we think about um, than Drexler. I mean, Drexler really isolated herself in Maine and kind of outside the realms of the artists that were working in the moment. And Faber was, you know, not to just make her the wife of, but, you know, she was married to Paul Jenkins. And you can see the influence of both artists in each other's work. And she spent a lot of time traveling. Her and Jenkins were both in Japan. Um, so you see a lot of that Japanese fluidity, especially in her watercolors and the way she paints um, with really, really thin paint on canvas. So I think that there is a lot, there's going to be a continued rise in, in Baber's market. It's also, to George's point, just bringing, I think it's looking at these female artist works and bringing their market to where it should be. And um, for Baber, there's definitely a lot of work out there, you know, to satisfy demand as this is really like just the early point in her market as people start to think about her in the greater context of the female artists that kind of drive the conversation, you know, Frankenthaler, Mitchell, and others. But um, 
I'm excited by her art and her and this kind of pop that we saw in the past week. So hopefully more to come. And Paul Jenkins was a friend of Mitchell's, uh, too. They spent time together in Paris, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all like when you when you dig into it, their circles all kind of circumnavigate each other, which I think is even it just makes Baber's story one that the rediscovery is is rich because there's a lot there. There's a lot of friendships and relationships. Um throughout the circles that we already talk about. So I think bringing her back into the conversation, uh, you know, will will provide collectors, you know, a new path when they're thinking about uh, women abstract expressionists. And, you know, she kind of also plays into the color field school interest. She wasn't aligned with that school, but her works have that fluidity and um, kind of just natural shape creation that you see in a lot of color field paintings. So, you know, she kind of meets two different eyes and fits into a lot of collector's pockets. So I think you'll see more and more of her crop up on the market. I know there was a lot of, uh, you know, kind of private interest in her work after that auction. So we'll see how that grows. Museum and gallery shows have a huge effect on interest in artists and demand. And we're seeing this week, um, well, I guess next week is the opening of Wolfgang Tillman's show at MoMA, which has been long delayed. And his his, uh, uh, work had been, you know, very much in demand uh, three, five years ago. Uh, And it it seems that, uh, you know, this show, depending on uh, the early reception, seems strong, but also on the content of the show, whether it'll have an effect uh, on the market. Uh, and I, I want to throw that to George, but before I do, I just also want to mention that we're also going to talk about Rick Lowe opening at Gagosian and Christina Carl's opening at Hauser and Worth. But, but first, George, do you want to talk a little bit about Tillman? Yeah, so, I, you know, the Tillman's show at MoMA, as you mentioned, much delayed and kind of curious as we saw a big run you know, during my tenure at Sotheby's um, on Tillman's entering the evening sales spectrum and growing sort of on the eve of the Tate um, mid-career show, and then the follow-up subsequent show, um, The Byler, which coincided with the Art Basel of that year. Um, and there was a huge growth, first and foremost, for the Price Swimmer, the very abstract series, and then some of the other series like Paper Drops and some of the still life started to gain momentum as well. And we saw this big arc in price discovery and development, and then a tapering off that coincided with a slight rise in the primary market pricing. Um, And then like anything cyclical, the art world kind of shifted and moved on, um, due in part to a bit of oversaturation of reoccurring images and auctions, etc., but also just the natural cycle of things. Um, it was always kind of thought that this MoMA show would be the deliverance of the Tillman's market to the U.S. market. You know, the auctions sort of superseded that when the price swimmers appeared in New York evening sales. And I, I just, my big question here, and this will be the, the thesis, is will... Will the MoMA show be different than the shows we saw in Europe a few years ago? Will it have a political edge? Certainly when it was supposed to be during the last presidential cycle in the U.S., one had to believe that the editorial political side of Tillman's may have come out stronger. Will that still be the case? Um, And will there be another price discovery or price movement um, in the public auction or private sale market? Certainly I've seen a couple more requests than usual for Tillman's on a large scale. Um, and if I had to hypothesize, I'd say, yeah, we'll probably see a bump. Um, how far of a bump, you know, TBD, I think we'll probably get back and maybe surpass some of the auction highs we saw a few years ago. Rick Lowe uh, got a big 
feature in the Wall Street Journal the other day. Uh, he got a lot of attention uh, in a number of shows that Gagosian has uh, run over the last couple of years, curated by Antoine uh, uh, Sargent. And, and this show seems like it is going to kind of meet the, an interesting, as you, you sort of pointed out earlier, George, a turn towards abstraction, um, a, along with a, a strong, continuing interest with artists with a social practice. Uh, do do any of you have a, a sort of sense or have a hearing uh, from you know buyers or sellers about how uh, they want to approach? I know that there's in institutional interest in low that needs to be satisfied. So I'm wondering how all of that will play out in the marketplace. Um, I would say that Rick Low feels like a perfect storm right now, Marion. You've got kind of an aesthetic that trends towards other notable abstractionists, kind of like a la Mark Bradford, looking at these kind of urban landscapes. And you've also got this social element to it, a la Theaster Gates, right? And then, you know, the, the, the theme here on, on today's chat has been rediscovery. And here's a guy who's been making art for a long time and, you know, very socially engaged with setting up community centers and domino games and redevelopment of his Houston community. So all of that points towards sort of like a story you can get behind and an aesthetic you can get behind. And, you know, the inclusion of that great black and white painting at the Whitney Biennial this year, that was, a, that was nice to see alongside the Jason Rhodes installation on that floor. Um, so I, I think this is going to be a very well-attended opening and a very well-received show. And I think beyond the institutional side of things, there's going to be serious interest from, you know, serious collectors and collectors of all stripes. Um, jumping in will be very difficult. I remember asking about a picture which was going to Basel, um, circa price 150000 and, you know, not a chance in France for getting it. And and I'm assuming the you know size of the work and and the wall power is also going to play uh, a role. Sort of you know it adds just another facet of appeal and types of collectors you can bring in. It's juicy abstraction that's easy to live with and has a strong message behind it. Yeah, I think it's it's got all the all the right elements to it. Well, in a sort of slight almost bank shot on that, Christina Carls uh, had a big impact at the uh, Venice. Uh, biennial this summer and uh, or spring and and that also uh, had a strong effect on her auction market with a, a somewhat you know destabilizing or at least shocking 4.5 million dollar sale at Sotheby's um, in May. Uh, so th that's sort of the the prologue to the opening of this sh show. But she too is you know hard to define. She's she's sort of an abstract artist, sort of a figurative uh, uh, artist. Uh, she has a lot of appeal uh, across, I think, you know, many different types of uh, uh, collectors. Is this going to be like, you know, you just can't get anywhere near her? And so it, it's going to be a, a, a fairly, you know, a, a spectator event? Or is there going to be more work changing? It? I think there's going to be, sorry, if anyone else wants to jump in. Um, I think there's going to be work changing hands. I think for now, that auction result we saw in May is going to remain a bit of an outlier, if I had to guess. Um but I think things will still sell and trade either publicly or privately for good numbers. Um, and I think Quarles represents the forefront of, of abstracted figuration that we're seeing in other artists like Stephanie Heinze or Ileana Savdi. You know, I think this is a whole kind of movement unto itself. Well, well I guess that, that, that. That, that raises the real question. I mean, I, I agree with you. 4.5 million is very specific to both the time and the collection the work came out of uh, uh, at all. And I, I don't think anyone should be looking for other sales 
even at that level, but that there's still a huge difference between she was selling for at auction for six hundred eighty thousand. Before that, there's plenty of middle ground there. But in these kinds of situations, we often see that that brings along other artists who are similar but more um, approachable in market terms. Uh, Sophie Arena, have you heard or you know uh, from your clients or from people who are selling? You know uh, of. Uh, uh, you know, George just mentioned too, but other artists that would sort of, you know, fall into the slipstream behind Coral. I mean, I think I think George hit the nail on the head that Sabdi is the one that's kind of on everybody's lips. Um, she has had a few solo shows, you know, on the primary market. Her work really plays into that um, kind of identity formation. Um, you know, they're they're very personal, but you really need to dig into them to kind of understand the personal aspects. They require some deep looking, but they're also very visually and aesthetically pleasing, um, you know, if, if you were going to live with something of that nature. But you know, she's the one that I, I've heard the most about from people that I've talked to and just kind of interest level rising. And I mean, on the more abstract side, I, I would kind of loop in. Lauren Quinn, she's definitely pushing the boundaries more of the abstraction side. And there's definitely not a figure really in sight. But, um, you know, I think a lot of these artists are kind of working within the same aesthetic trends. And you'll start to see more and more of them crop up on the auction market as they move out of the primary. But um, Savdi is definitely the one you kind of can't escape now, now in the conversation. And, and can we go back to, to Lowe? Is there, are there other artists who might um, be sort of pulled along or brought, uh, you know, into the market uh, by low success? I mean, that's, we're anticipating that, but presuming w w everything that George sort of sketched out happens over the next three to six mo months, do, do we ha have other artists that we think, you know, people start uh, paying attention to. I, I actually think low track closer to Drexler, if I had to put it into context of this discussion in the greater art world. Well, that makes sense. And then that fills a fair amount of space uh, uh, in between. Totally. Uh, and, and, and triangulating between those for collectors should, should create a, a lot of different uh, market uh, opportunity. I just want to thank uh, Arena and Sophie and George for uh, putting the time into this. And I hope you will join us all next week when we'll have a bit more to talk about after the Armory show and some of these openings. Thank you, Marianne. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Marion. Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. The Artelligence podcast is edited by Colin Ketchum, who also composed the original music. Come back next week or subscribe to at Art Market on Twitter and join our live Twitter space.